We're finishing up our study in Deuteronomy here and uh, getting close to the end. And We saw last week in uh, 28 and 29 and 30 uh, that God's forgiveness, and we talked about the, the, the reality that the degree to which we understand that God has give, forgiven us is the degree to which that we will forgive others. And how we see ourselves having been forgiven impacts the way that we forgive and, and love others. We need to understand that we are a people who have been forgiven much. And therefore, in response to that, we ought to be a people who loves much. And uh, God indeed has forgiven us of much. And Moses has shared that with them time and time again as in Deuteronomy, reminded them of his faithfulness, even in the midst of their lack of faithfulness, of their faithfulness in wandering from Egypt and the provision and all of that. But, but in this world that we live in, the tendency is to be drawn away. The tendency is to be pulled away from that fidelity and loyalty to the Lord. And this was true not only today, but this was true in Israel's day as well. And Moses knows that, especially as he leaves, as they get into the promised land, as they sort of get to where they've been trying to get to their whole lives, they're going to feel like they've arrived. He told them in, in Deuteronomy 6 that when they got there, they would uh, presume upon God's goodness. They would assume upon God's goodness and uh, the enemies would overthrow them. And Moses warns them again, if you turn away from the Lord, if you take lightly the commandments of the Lord, if you trod upon the Lord's grace and mercy and forgiveness carelessly, you're going to fall. And not only that, you're going to wander away and you're going to worship false gods and they're going to have their way with you. And so Moses, uh, again, put yourself in Moses' shoes here. He knows he's about to die. He's known he's about to die. And he's telling the people, he's warning them. He's even trying to put some safeguards around them so that they won't wander away from devotion and fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord. And it's interesting that the two disciplines that he gives us here in, ver in chapters 31 and 32 to try to help them not fall away. They indeed will fall away. They will fall away. And in Deuteronomy 30, we saw just in God's goodness, He told them that judgment would not be the last word. That He would restore them, that He would regather them from all over the world one day. Uh, we, we even see it leaking in today. We know from Jeremiah 31, we know from Ezekiel 36, that one day God will give them a new heart. He will put His word in them so that they will obey not from external written word, but from the heart. And we have a glimpse of that today with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But one day God will, will do that fully with his people, Israel. And so two disciplines. He gives us two disciplines that I want to I offer up today. Two disciplines that will help us remain loyal and faithful to our Lord. And the first one is this. Obey and train God's servants. Obey and train God's servants. We see this specifically in, in verses 1 through 8. Moses is 120, year old, 120 years old. He's about to die. He has faithfully led Israel for some 80 years. Really 40 years specifically in the desert. Some 40 years were, were in, in other parts where, where he was in Egypt and that. But it's time for Moses to step aside and for Joshua to take the baton and carry on. And, and again, this wasn't because Moses was not fit for the job. Even at 120 years old, you'd think, well, I know why, because he couldn't see, he couldn't hear, he couldn't all these. No, no, no. You look at Deuteronomy 34, 7, Moses was fit. He was physically, it wasn't that. God had told Moses, 
you won't enter the land. His sin had caused him to not enter the land. We saw that in chapter 1. We saw that in chapter 3. We've seen that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. But, but Moses was fit. Even at 120 years old, he was fit. It says in verse 7 of chapter 34, Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. At 38, I feel like my eyes are dim and my vigor has abated. 120. 120 years. And Joshua would be the man. Joshua is going to be the man that leads them into the promised land. And Joshua was not a stranger to the people. They, they knew Joshua, that Joshua had been around for a while. Joshua had fought battles on behalf of Israel with their enemies. Joshua and Caleb, you remember, went out with the spies and came back and gave a good report that though there were giants in the land, he said, we got them. God has promised us this land, we got them. Jo Joshua's going to be the man. But yet changes in leadership can be difficult. We're a people, Israel was a people, we get comfortable. We, we, no matter how bad it is sometimes, we still like the comfort because we don't want to change. And even when something maybe isn't the great, I'm not saying this is about Moses, but just to the point of we don't like change. And especially changes in leadership. We grow comfortable, we like the people, we, we know their style, we know what to expect. We, we maybe have deep friendships with them. Sometimes, as possibly was the case with Israel, sometimes we begin to rely on them too much. In some ways, Moses probably had become sort of what our, that little blanket is to our kids. My daughter will not go to sleep unless she has her, she calls it her monkey blanket. I don't know where she came up with that. There's not a monkey on it. I think there's a tree on it or something, but it's her monkey blanket. She won't go to sleep unless she has it. You could cover her up with 900 other blankets. That, she'll know, you didn't cover me up with a monkey blanket. I've tried to trick her just to see it don't work. And Moses had sort of become sort of a comfort to the people. He had led them for so long. His presence had, in some ways, I would imagine, had become somewhat of a security blanket to Israel. Again, 40 years he's walked with them. 40 years. Imagine if, I, if God allowed and, and I pastored this church for 40 years. It'd be hard for somebody else to step into the pulpit. It'd be hard to sit in the pew, possibly, for somebody else. You sit under somebody's teaching for 40 years. Some of us have gone through that. So, some of the individuals are still here that were here under Tom Wade's leadership. It, it's not always the easiest thing. And, and I think mo all of us can learn from what Moses does here. Moses doesn't build himself up. Moses doesn't attract any attention to himself. Moses attracts all attention to the Lord. And look what Moses says here. He says, just as, jo just as the Lord went with, went with me, has been with me, he'll be with Joshua. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. He, Moses reminds Israel of this truth, that their future success, that their continuance, did not depend on a human leadership. It depended on, on God's presence. They could be comforted, they could be encouraged, they would be strengthened in this, that God was still with them. Moses would not be with them in the land, but God would be with them. And at the end of the day, that's what really mattered. God was raising up Joshua... But, but that was ir irrelevant in the sense that ultimately it was God who was their leader. 
He says in verse 3, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one that will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them. Who's doing the work? The Lord is doing that. Joshua for sure is going to be the leader, but in the same way that God was working through Moses, it's God who's going to be working through Joshua. And Moses is very quick to remind them of this. He wants no attention. All glory and honor and attention is going to go to the Lord. And the interesting thing is, is you see, in spite of that, the one thing that, the, that Moses and the Lord here through Moses addresses time and time again in this chapter is what? Fear. In spite of that fear. Fear is a, fear is a reality for us. It's a reality for Israel. You, you see the command, do not be afraid. You see that time and time and time again, not only in this section, but also throughout Scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We see it in verse 6. We see it in verse 7. We see it in verse 8, reminding them, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It is the Lord who goes with you. And fear, fear is an interesting thing. It's interesting that it would be mentioned so often. And here's why. It's not really one of those, like if you, if you ranked, if we in our humanity ranked sin, where do you think fear would fall? It'd be way down the list. Like it's not... On our, in, our, in our humanity, we don't see it as this heinous, you know, awful sin. And yet God addresses it time and time and time again. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It, it, fear is one of those sins where you would think in your humanity, I mean, I don't, is anyone really getting hurt by my fear? Is it, is it that bad? And yet God addresses it time and time again. And here's why I think fear, especially in the hearts of God's people, is such a big deal. Here's why I think God would mention it so many times. If you were to look at 1 John 4.18, I believe we have a hint of the answer there. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Some of your translations may say punishment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. There is no fear in love, in perfect love. And here's what I, think, what I think God may be teaching through Moses and teaching in us. When we fear, fear in our lives is, is somewhat of God's way of showing us areas of our lives that His love has not penetrated. That we're really not trusting in His love the way we ought. When we're fearful, we're, it's speaking to us, it's showing us a part of our lives that maybe we're not trusting God the way that we ought to. That, that, that maybe we've not allowed His truth to penetrate that area of our life the way that it should. But, but not only that, think about what fear communicates to a, to a world around us that doesn't know our Lord. God's people running around in fear and anxiety and and, and these things, fear communicates to the world that, that there's a, maybe a lack of trustworthiness or faithfulness in our God. When we are a people who are fearful, that, that might be the, the way that, that the world receives that as communication. Communication about our God. Now, that's not the truth. But that's what's communicated at times. And, and so Moses commands them to respond appropriately to the truth of God's presence. And the truth of that is, God will be with you, therefore be strong and courageous. 
It's, it's interesting, in John 14, Jesus is about to leave the disciples. He knows he, his, his, his day is drawing near, the hour that he was appointed to die is drawing near, and he says, you know, take comfort. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave you another helper. Literally, the Spirit of God living in you. They were afraid. Their leader is leaving. Jesus is leaving. They've left everything and followed him faithfully for the most part. And he's leaving. And what does he say? The Holy Spirit will be with you. My presence will be in you. Literally the same helper. That word another means of the same kind. He says the same kind of helper that you had when I was physically with you is the same kind of helper you're going to have when I'm gone because the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you. And you see Acts 2, a group of men that are scared, huddled in a little room, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they are bold as lions. And confidence in God, confidence in the Word of God, squashes doubts. Not only would God lead them sovereignly, but He would lead them through their next leader. And Moses reminds them, it's not you really who is fighting these battles, though, though you're going to be faithful and them, fight them, but it is God who is fighting your battles. And, and just as Moses was the leader, Joshua will be the leader. Joshua's already fought battles. Joshua's been training for this position quietly under Moses' leadership for many, many years. He's ready. It's interesting. He says there, Do not fear, verse 8, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That is the, listen, that is the same Thing that that is what the author of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is faithful. And that should alleviate our fears. And it's, what is interesting to me is one of the ways that God does that is through leadership because right after that in verse 17, look at Hebrews 13, 17 and, and look at what God says in that same context of I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Look what he says. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. One of the ways that God comforts, one of the God, ways that God guides, one of the ways that God promises that He'll never leave you is forsake you is through your leaders, through your church, specifically church leaders. Romans 13, he tells you he does that through government leaders. Leaders. And our leaders, especially in the church, are for our good, and they are to be obeyed. They lead us so that we will grow in the Lord, that we'll grow in confidence and in, in, in faith, that we will experience God's presence, understand His presence, and our fears will fade. And, and I think the truth of some of the truth that what we have to see is that is this, that... that um, there is no substitute for godly leaders. The church and the world, we need men and women who will stand up boldly and lead. And God uses that. He raises them up and He uses that. He, he takes leadership very seriously. In, in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, He lays down the qualifications very strongly for church leadership. Moses Moses, through the, through, the, through the power of God and working in his life, had trained up Joshua to succeed him. Joshua was ready. He trained him. 
Moses made sure when he departed that there was somebody to hand the baton to. That is the goal. That is one of the responsibilities of us as a church as well. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, You who are faithful men, you pass on the word of God to faithful men. You literally hand the baton to the next generation, but make sure they're ready. I read an interesting quote this week about, about this subject, and, it's, and it said this. The final test of a leader is that they leave behind in others the conviction and the will to carry on. The final test of a leader is, did they leave people prepared to carry on? And Moses did a good job of that. Obviously, God is doing that through them, but Joshua was prepared. Joshua didn't just appear on the scene. Moses didn't just say, man, I'm about to die. Uh, you, come on. He was ready. Joshua was ready. And, and listen, Joshua was faithful long before he was the leader. Joshua was cultivating the, the, the disciplines and the, the traits and all the things that would make of him a good leader. God was doing that in him long before he ever led. Same with David. David was out shepherding sheep, fighting lions, doing all these things, seeing God's faithfulness. When he became leader, he's like, who's this Philistine? I've been whooping, I've been whooping things through the Lord's strength. All, he ain't nothing but a thing. See, God had been training him up long before he ever became king. He was training to be king. Long before Joshua ever became the leader, he was faithful and had been training. He had fought battles. He had been watching Moses. Moses had been tutoring, tut tutoring him. Tutoring, I don't think that's a word, but tutoring him. As I was preparing this, I, I, I thought about this, a picture of this. And, and God in His grace gave me a picture of this. And, and I had the opportunity to go to Lee's father's funeral. And I don't think I'll ever forget when, when it was the, the lady's husband, Mark. Is his name Mark? I think it was Mark that asked. This is a packed house. This funeral was packed. And he said, I want, I want to ask you, stand up if you were discipled. Stand up if you were discipled by Lee's father. Stand up. I, I'm not exaggerating. I felt like John Cordova and I were the only two people not standing in the funeral. Of, of many, 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 many hundreds. That man in his life had poured his life into making sure that the next generation was ready to lead when he left. Lee himself, when he got up and spoke about his father, spoke about this, about carrying on, that the mission is still to be carried on. It didn't reside with just his father. It's for all of us to be training and to be, to be ready to lead. I promise you three-fourths of that funeral, at least three-fourths of that funeral stood up, at least hundreds and hundreds. In his years of faithfulness, he discipled and trained, and they were ready to lead. The church was, that church was in good hands, partly because of Lee's father. Now, obviously, God is sovereign and was doing that through him. I don't want to give to, and Lee's dad would not do that either, but, but he was faithful. And, and again, Joshua was ready. God answered Moses' prayer for a successor by giving them Joshua, who had been faithful long before this moment. And listen to me. Leaders faithfully serve and are trained long before they faithfully lead. Leaders are doing the job. They're doing the role. They're doing what it takes. They're developing the characters, the characteristics, long before they, they get the position 
Don't, don't wait. Don't think you'll wait to cultivate faithfulness until you have the job. No, cultivate faithfulness and the Lord will give you the job. You don't, you don't wait to become faithful. Well, I'll, wait and, I'll wait and be faithful until I get married. I'll wait and be diligent until I have a job. I'll, no, you won't. You do it now. You, you, you don't say, well, I'll wait to become hardworking once I have a job that pays me. You're not going to have a job that pays you. You, you do it behind the scenes. You start now. We pursue training now. We pour our life into somebody now. You don't say, well, I'll wait till I know the Bible good enough. You'll never know the Bible good enough to start training somebody. Never. If I say, well, I'll wait till I'm a good pastor and I'll pastor a church, I'd still be doing what I was doing. I'm not sure I'm a good one now. You start doing what it takes now. Even in the quiet spot, even when nobody's looking, David was off shepherding sheep and his own brothers, his own father, did not even call him to the house when Samuel is standing there to pick the next leader. Didn't even call him. Yet who had God been cultivating, who had God been training and cultivating to lead long before he ever got the position? You, you do it now, and you do it in the quietness and the privateness long before you do it in the public setting. And I promise you, God will honor that. And we need to be a people that are pouring our lives, that are finding people, that are looking for opportunities to pour our lives into other people, not just soak everything up for ourselves, but be ready to be squeezed out into the lives of other people. And I would ask each of you, who's your Joshua, if you will? For Paul, it was Timothy. Who's your Timothy? Who is it that you're going to come alongside no matter where? I promise you, here's the deal. No matter where you are as a wall, in your walk of faith, there, that's the thing, older serving the younger. You're older than somebody. You're more advanced in your walk than somebody. We need to be training up people to lead. We need to be pouring our lives into others. And, and Moses did that well because there's going to come a time of day, there's going to come a day when I'm not standing behind this pulpit and somebody else is, but as long as they're teaching and preaching the Word of God, you follow them. It's not about me, it's not about, it's not about Lee, it's not about you know, Dwayne, it's not about Ken, it's about the Word of God, you follow. If they're preaching the Word of God, you follow. And we need to be a church. We need to make sure that we're obeying, but also that we're training up leaders in this church. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, Use whatever gift you have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Disciple somebody. And here's the thing. You say, well, I'm not a good discipler. If you seek to do that, I, 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 I promise you, if we had a video to show when I first started teaching Family Matters at Idlewild, I'm amazed somebody showed up the second day. I literally learn how to teach in front of them. I'm learning how to preach. I'm learning how to shepherd. I'm learning how to be this pastor. That's the struggle I've lived. I'm living, I'm learning it in front of you. Like you didn't get a guy that had been seasoned for 20 years and had it all. You got me. Learning on the job. And I'm grateful for you. But obey and train. And not only that, be gracious with one another as we're learning. 
You know, we want everybody to come in and just be, the, be Charles Stanley or be these guys who we see the 40-year pro- product. Well, guess what? Charles Stanley started somewhere. Jeremiah started somewhere. Platt started somewhere. We need to be gracious with each other and help build each other up and encourage. Start teaching somewhere. Start doing it somewhere, but be gracious with one another. We say, well, I'll do it if only you teach. Right? No, no, that's not, what, that's not the church. We're here to equip others, to train others, to be leaders. So obey and train leaders. But not only that, Moses gives us a second, a second, command, a second principle or, or discipline that will keep us from straying. The first thing is make sure you obey and train up your leaders and that will help you from straying. They're, they're going to stray because they don't follow these principles, but Moses gives them. The second one is this, obey and guard God's word. Obey and guard God's word. And, and Moses talks about that in, in 9 through 13. And, and the rest of 31 and 32, they, 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 they're telling them, you're going to fall away, you're not going to obey this. But look what he says. Moses wrote the law and gave it to the priests, the sons of the Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the Israel, elders in Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, they would gather. They're spread out everywhere. When they gather, when you come together... When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place He chooses, you shall read the law in front of all of Israel in their hearing. You know, He's telling them, every time you gather, read the Word. Every time you gather, remind them of the Word. Every time you gather, give them the Word. They didn't have apps. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have 15 Bibles sitting around their house. These th- this thing was written on scrolls. Every time you gather, give them the word. Remind them of the word. And, and, and that was the blessing, really, of Israel. At, at Mount Sinai, God made it very clear that unlike all the nations around them, they would know what their God was like, what He desired of them, what He wanted of them. They would know all of that. They would hear, they would literally, Moses would literally hear the voice of their God. They would hear the voice of their God through the law. Through the law, they would know clearly what God wanted of them. And that's really the folly of idolatry. Psalm 115, uh, verses 7 and 8. Let me read that real quick. Is it? I don't know if I gave that to them. Psalm 115 says this, talking about the foolishness of idols. He says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, their work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Israel was not like, their God was not like that. He had spoken. He was different. He was real. He's the one and only. And God rules and speaks through His Word. He rules and speaks through the Word. And Moses is telling them, don't wander far from the Word. Don't ever wander far from hearing the Word. And Moses knew they would wander. And he's preparing them. Look, the culture is going to pull you and pull you and pull you away for the simplicity and the devotion to God's Word. The world, Satan is a deceiver, he's a liar, he's going to try to convince you of all these other things, and he's saying, you hold, God's people must be a people that holds the Word of God up high. 
that no matter what comes, no matter what goes, no matter what the culture says, no matter how, look, no matter how the world defines marriage, no matter how the world defines sexuality, it doesn't matter. God's word has defined that. We're going to stick with God's word. And, and it doesn't matter if churches are falling by this church as long as I'm the pastor, it'll be one man, one woman. Period. God defined the sexes as male and female. He designed you that way. To change that is sin. It is defiance. It's not a choice. He designed men to be with women. By design. That's not up for your choice or your discussion. Or, and if, if that offends you, take it up with the Lord. That's what His Word says. And it goes way beyond that. We've got to be a people... We are doing the world no favors when we water down the Word of God. When we balk at the Word, when we, when, we, when we refuse to defend the Word, when we refuse to speak up, we are not doing the world favors. We are hurting them. I mean, if, my children, if, if you see a child running around this church with a knife in his hand, that's his choice, you know, don't mess with him. Leave him alone, we don't want to hurt his feelings. No, get, get rid of the knife. The world running around spouting off all this foolishness, it's destroying them. You're, we're not doing them favors. And God says, God's people, I mean, Moses says, God's people have got to be a people that hold the word of God up high, no matter what the culture thinks. Stick to the word. And he says, every time you gather, regularly meditate on the word. Why? Because that will protect you from wandering away and it will protect you from worshiping false gods to regularly be confronted with the word of God. That's exactly, we've seen it time and time again, that is exactly what Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says about our gatherings. We are gathering to encourage one another, to lift one another up, but we do it with the word. We do it with the word. It's interesting, not long after this, they are going to forget these things and neglect these things, and you have a very clear statement in the Scriptures. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was no longer about what does the Word of God say, and we're going to obey that. It was what do I say. Is that not the culture that we live in today? You leave God's Word behind, you turn your back on God's word, you water it down a little bit, guess what? The whole thing falls apart. We gather to promote the word and to teach the word, but here, not only for us, but for the next generation. Look what it says in verse 13. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are about to cross. There are generations who have not heard. Tell them. Why do we need to be strong in the Word? So that we can tell others. So that we can teach others. Not everybody's growing up with a, a mom and a dad who love the Word. Not everyone's growing up with a mom and dad who, who teach them the Word every night. Access to a, to a facility like this. We need to be equipped so that we can help them. That's why Colossians 3.16 talks about the, may the Word of God richly dwell within you. I would ask, does, can you say that? Would you, would you say that the Word of God richly dwells within you? That, that's why we, we're, we're, we implemented even this week the memory verse. I've been struggling with that. I, I don't want that to be a law thing. I don't want that to be a legal thing. I'm not walking around asking you, but wouldn't it be cool as a church if we walked around in a loving way? Hey, how you doing? How you doing memorize your verse this week? Hey, how you, you working on 1 Peter 6 and 7? 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7? If we did that as a church, 
Not in a high, I caught you, you don't know it yet, I know it, you don't know it. By Wednesday, y'all better have it down because we're going to quiz you at Awana and we're going to know you. No, encouraging. At the end of one year, if you did that, you would have memorized 52 verses. That's good. It's probably 52 more than a lot of people know outside of John 3.16. But, but one a week. I, I've got that verse on, a, on an index card. I cheated. I started a little bit ahead of y'all. It's sitting in my car. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And, and we, we gather to focus on the Word. Everything else is junk food. Everything else is junk food. It's the Word of God that nourishes. And we worship through the Word. Listen, because, listen, the call to worship is fundamentally an invitation. God is inviting you to commune with Him. He's inviting you to speak to you face to face. That's, I, I greatly appreciate Daniel and and. His and I heart is, are, are together in this. We're not going to sing a song that does not make biblical truth. We're not going to sing a song just because it's a cool song. If it does not teach, if we do not know who you're singing about, and if it's not about God, we're not teaching it. We're not singing it. Because when, you, when we sing songs, we're teaching theology. Whether you realize it or not, we're teaching theology. And, and worship, the call to worship, the call to open up this word on a regular, daily, moment-by-moment basis is literally God's invitation to approach His throne with confidence and boldness and to have his, an ear with Him. Think about that. that. That's the beauty of Israel. They knew the word. They had been given the word. Look, look with me at Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day of the trial of the wilderness. That is the danger for all of us. To grow cold, to harden our hearts, to wander away. 2 Timothy 4.3 reminds us today, it warns us of a time where men and women will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll simply want their ears to be tickled. In many regards, we're living in a picture of that day to day. They want, to, they want their ears tickled. They don't want meat. It's got to be cool. It's got to be flashy. You know, I, I, see, I see churches today where the, dude is swing, the pastor is swinging around on a vine, preaching from a birdcage. I mean, what in the world? Come on. What in the world? It's got to be entertaining. It's got to be light. It's got to be little stuff. I hope nobody knows that dude that preached from that birdcage. That might be church where you came from. You may wish you could go back after today's sermon. I don't know. But there's, y'all, I think the stewards know him. Y'all are laughing hard. That's your brother, ain't it? No, I'm just kidding. But, but listen, there will come a day I get diverted easily. That's the joy of ADD. I want to, truthfully, I want to know what y'all are laughing at. I'm struggling, wondering, how are they laughing at something that I don't know what they're laughing about? That's what my mind is thinking right now. Listen, and so to keep people back to track here, shame on y'all for distracting me. To keep, why, why, why do we make God's Word such a big deal so we don't wander away? Every time we gather, we're going to dig in to the books. We're going to dig in to the word that God has given us and we're going to make it superior. We're going to hold it higher than anything else. Listen, nothing can displace this word of God. Nothing can displace this. It is life-giving. 
It is good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, adequate for every good work. The Word of God does that. Scripture does that. And it's not just one or two books. All Scripture, Paul says, all Scripture. And throughout the New Testament... 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, you are to teach no other doctrine. 2 Timothy 4 says, you're to preach nothing but the word in season, out of season, when they want to hear it, when they don't want to hear it. Preach the word, Timothy, Paul says. Preach the word. 1 Timothy 1.10, throughout the word of God is truth. It is sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.6, he says, only feed with the word because it's healthy. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. Word of God. And again, Deuteronomy 31, 13, it says, there are generations we have got to pass the baton. We've got to make sure our children, not only that we know it, but that our children know it. And that we, it looks at what it says, so that, so that they will have unconditioned, they will learn to fear the Lord. They'll learn to fear the Lord. They'll, they'll see that He's good. They'll hear that He's good. The hear of the great things he has done. Only God's word has the, trower, the power to transform our lives. And, and, and again, that's the beauty of what we hold. God has spoken, and we hold that in our hands. Like I hold, I am literally holding God's word in my hands. And that was the beauty, that was the beauty of the law being given to Israel. They knew what God was like. They knew what God had commanded of them. They knew it. They didn't have to guess. They didn't have to wonder. It was crystal clear. And, and that, in many regards, was the aim of the law, that they would come to see God and His character, but that, and they would worship Him. But here's the core of it all. It's a relationship. They could be in a relationship with their God. They could relate to Him. Ultimately, ultimately, it would be, you look at Galatians 3.24, it says the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. Ultimately, it was that they would see the wonder of Jesus Christ and His death on a cross. Everything led to that because what the law could not do, weak as it was of the flesh, Romans says, Jesus Christ did. Namely, save you. Never had the power to save. Never. It was about a relationship. And Israel would shun the relationship, they would trample on it, and God would judge them. But judgment, again, was not the final word, and God's word tells us that. One day the Lord will gather them and bring them from all the lands that they've been exiled and bring them together and put a new heart, put the word of God in them. No longer would be externally. Romans 6.17 talks about obeying from the heart. Why? Because God's Spirit is in them. And in spite of all of our sin, the Scripture reminds us that there is a glorious hope awaiting for His people. If you're like this pastor and you've sinned and fallen short, hear me, there's power to forgive. And in spite of our wonderings, in spite of our failures, and in spite of Israel's, there's a glorious hope that awaits and Moses, you can go to 32, chapter 32. Moses writes a song, and that song is, is all about the greatness of God. All about the greatness of God. 
It's interesting, just in God's sovereignty, uh, Daniel saying today about the rock. Look at, Psalm, look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and, and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, of God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is He. He, he's, he's great. The question becomes this, how big a God do you worship? What kind of God? What, what's He like? Because this word tells us. He tells us. And, and it strengthens us to teach. It strengthens us to preach. And, and, and not only that, it, it, I thought about this is where this whole, the handout there that Lee spoke about, it, it, it encourages, as Moses says, to not cave in under persecution. See, Israel was persecuted. Israel was taken to the woodshed, if you will, because of their sin. But listen, I was reminded this week that there are millions of Christians all over the world who are being persecuted today, not because of their sin, but because of their faith. And, and if I can be honest with you, that these, these men and women, they know the greatness of God, they, they've been taught the greatness of God, they have God's Word, and they are willing to die for their allegiance to this great God. Willing to die because they worship a great God. They refuse to back down. They refuse to, to, to take back their confession no matter what the cost. And, and, and I, I thought about, I heard it this week that conservative, conservative statistics, conservative, say over 100 Christians die every month worldwide because of their faith. Those are conservative. I mean, that's talking about ones that we literally know about, maybe. That's not all the untolds that we're not aware of. A hundred. And here's what I was convicted of. Am I praying for those? Am I praying faithfully? And I felt like God was telling me, you're not, Chris. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 reminds us that universally all Christians are part of one body. Literally, when they're being persecuted there, they're persecuting me. That's my body. And I'm not praying for them the way I should. And maybe you're not praying for them the way that you should. And I had to repent before the Lord that, that, Lord, I don't believe I've prayed for my brothers and sisters all over the world the way that you've called me to, the way that your word reminds me to. And Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me the times that I act like nothing's happening around the world because of what I see in front of me, because of the comfort that I experience, that I forget maybe, that maybe I pretend to not know about. Am I raising Bradley and Sarah Grace to do the same? Or will they be raised up in a home that says, Look, it's a big deal to be a Christian, to wear this label, and there are Christians all over the world that are dying for that. Bradley, Sarah, would you be willing to die for that? If called upon? And that's what that little handout is there in your horizon. On that, you can go to that website, Open Doors. It, it ranks the 50, the 50 greatest countries where Christian persecution occurs. And what you have in your hands is number one. Number one. 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned every year for simply declaring the name of Jesus. And I want to ask us as a body if we'll pray for them. And that handout will help you pray for them. It gives the name of the leader, the population, the, just some stats about that country. It gives you some potential things to pray about. 
that my goal would be that through a study of a word and through an equipping and strengthening that we would be a church that would never back down, that would never waver. I'm not saying we'll be perfect, but when asked and when called upon, we would profess the name of Jesus no matter what the cost. No matter what it costs. And I tied in this week's memory verse, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It's, I'm turning there because obviously I haven't memorized it yet. In this way, listen, in this way you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Listen, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When our faith is tested, I pray that we would come out as gold. I pray that we would not back down. It goes on to say, And though we have not seen Him, we love Him. And the outcome of that is unwavering love. It goes on to say that, verse 5 before that, We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I pray that while we wait for that salvation to be revealed, that we will, as the last fill in there, that we will not grow weary in doing good. The challenge for all of us is as we wait to grow weary. Do not tire, do not grow weary in doing good. Continue to be faithful. Continue to make much of Jesus. Continue to be watchful. Because the Bible tells us that one day He's going to return. And when He returns, it will not be, He will not return offering grace. He will return offering judgment for our sins. And if you have not prayed to receive Christ, if you have not asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, if you have not asked Jesus to exchange your sinfulness for His righteousness, if you have not traded that in, you're going to be judged. And heaven is not the recourse for that judgment. It's hell. I, I, don't, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with a smile on my face. I say that because that's what the Word of God says. Just like we saw last week, Moses said, you have a choice. Life Death, I beg you to choose life. You have a choice. Have your sins forgiven through Jesus or remain in your sins. Eternal life through Jesus. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's your choice. And I pray that every single person here would make that choice to choose life through Jesus alone. And then we would live that out of gratitude of being in a relationship with the one true God.